Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. I am, as I usually am, Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> I, I liked, like, the pause, like you were confused. Well, I was considering if it was worth it to try and join in on that bit that you were doing, and then I, my mind didn't work quite yeah. fast enough. You weren't so fast I, enough. So I just was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to say hi twice, and that's the joke. Yeah, puns don't count if they don't happen immediately. That's, yeah, no. They have a short pun life. It's true. So this is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so thankful to have you back yet again for our discussion on 2007's The Mist. the last film that is part of our sort of COVID collection, if you will, um, of films that we thought for various reasons were timely because they were touching on, on things and concerns that are pressing down and weighing on us. And what better way to distract yourself than to be reminded um, in cinematic form of all <laughs> the darkness in the world around you. And if you uh, listened, it's true. It is it's true. true. And if you listen to our last episode on 28 Days Later, you'll know that uh, we, we found that breaking point for Anthony where he found the film that was a little too close to home. Um, yeah. It was definitely that one. It was not this one. I'll go ahead and uh, go ahead and give some of my initial thoughts. It's not this one. I was not, uh, I was not spooked in quite the same way as I was when I watched 28 Days Later. And that makes perfect sense because there's a, a nihilistic nature to to 28 Days Later that I think very few films are capable of achieving. Um, and The Mist, despite its ending, just I don't think goes to that same place. Yeah, it's, I mean, for a Stephen King adaptation, though, uh, we've talked about Stephen King being remarkably affirmative, ultimately. Most of, while a lot of bad things happen throughout the text, ultimately, it's usually all kind of resolved by the end. This is kind of a darker, darker take on that. It's not exactly the same, uh, but still, it didn't hit me in the same way as 28 Days Later. And of course, I think we have to acknowledge that one of the reasons that there's an element that is un-Stephen King-esque is because of the the intrusion um, of Frank Darabont, right? And, it's true. And the fact that he is giving us a different ending than Stephen King's, which is going to be that more sort of traditional, but it's okay, we've escaped the monsters now, the badness is gone you know, we can return back to a good place. That's not where Darabon takes us um, at the end of this film. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> yes. So I did want to mention, because we, we often, you know, throw this these terms around of affirmative and disaffirmative. Um, and again, we owe so much credit to Linda Holland Toll for giving us those that framework um, to wrestle with. But although we often talk about dis disaffirmative films or we sort of casually say like, Stephen King really has a more affirmative stance. Um, I thought we it'd be a nice place to begin with just actually hearing what Stephen King has to say um, about horror films, about horror literature, and why he thinks it matters. So yeah, I guess it's finally time we give a voice to Stephen King after dunking on him for in a bunch of other previous episodes, and uh, even going as far as to say affirmative things cannot be scary. Yes. And I would like to say, like, every time I say that, I feel like I'm, you know, gonna like burst into spontaneous flames, right? Like, I feel like one should not be allowed to disagree with Stephen King without paying some sort of like hideous toll. Um, but the truth is, is that when I think of horror, I don't think of the end of Stephen King's stories. Certainly some of the middle stuff is some of the most haunting things, right? Like, um, you know, having your foot cut off because of your number one fan, terrifying, Finding out the hotel that you were occupied in is, is, you know, being shared by ghosts, including, you know, gross, like, wrinkly people from the bathtub. Terrifying. Um, but the end. Which is, yeah, and it, I mean, that's the place where King is often most faulted. Yes, it is. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? Because he's, he's trying to 
to offer us ultimately this sort of affirmative stance. And it really does go back to his opinion about what horror is and what horror should do. And so I wanted to just read a couple quotes um, from him. The, the first is from uh, an essay that originally appeared in Playboy, as all good essays should, because sometimes people do read the articles, right? Um, and, and is then, <laughs> thank you, I needed your laughter there. Um, and is now in his book, Dance Macabre, which is a fantastic book. Um, so he has a piece it called- It is a good book. It's just, I didn't know that it started in Playboy magazYeah, in, in a January 1981 <laughs> issue. And like, it just cracks me up because- Now introducing just... the latest academic journal, Playboy magazine. I know, I mean, I just can't, like somebody out there truly did get that issue for the article. Um, so- <laughs> He has this piece called Why We Crave Horror Movies. And, you know, he and he talks about the fact that we go to have fun. Um, and then he says, you know, like, but what kind of sickos are we for having this fun? And, of course, it's, you know, real, like, winky because I think the number one question he gets asked. Actually, I know because he said in, in interviews before is, like, what's wrong with you or mm -hmm. what bad thing happened in your childhood? And he says that for him, really what it, it comes down to um, is that he says, and this is a quote. The mythic horror movie, like the sick joke, has a dirty job to do. It deliberately appeals to all that is worse in us. It is morbidity unchained, our most base instincts let free, our nastiest fantasies realized. And it all happens, fittingly enough, in the dark. For these reasons, good liberals often shy away from horror films. For myself, I like to see the most aggressive of them, Dawn of the Dead, for instance, as lifting a trap door in the civilized forebrain and throwing a basket of raw meat to the hungry alligators swimming around in that subterranean river beneath. Why bother? Because it keeps them from getting out, man. It keeps them down there and me up here. It was Lennon and McCartney who said that all you need is love, and I would agree with that, as long as you keep the gators fed. Yeah, so I mean, that's basic. He's like, it's okay to indulge your vices and, and acknowledge the deep darkness that exists within all humanity, but... As long as you know that that's that's where that but that's where it stops. It has to stop right there. Yes, yes. You can acknowledge it, but that's not where you should really live and dwell. Exactly, and I think, like you said, because he because for him he sees horror as serving as a, an ability to compartmentalize. Yeah. And of course, if you've um, read or seen Doctor Sleep, um, you know this is a di an idea that he comes back to. This idea of having a place in your brain where you can store all the badness. But we also see that at some point, you know, the badness has the potential to trickle out. Yeah, it really is. Stephen King kind of views horror as escapism. It's it's truly just like a, a singular closed experience that as soon as you get to the end, that's it. You're done. So I agree. I agree with the idea of it being a sort of closed uh, experience, but I I disagree a little bit because I think one of the things that he's saying that makes horror so important um, is that we're constantly feeding it right like I think that we have to to keep in mind that we can, that it can be a one it can't be a one and done right it can oh, be a well, closed right, experience right, right. But, yeah exactly I, no 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 I think we I think we agree on this I, yes. I think we're saying the same thing I just should have I should have been like yeah I should have elaborated just a touch more it's like you don't just finish. That's why you have horror fanatics because right. you can't just end the experience there. But the horror film itself is a singular experience, yes. or the horror text itself, rather. And I think, I think honestly, it was just the word escapism. Like every time I hear that, I just feel the instinct to like fight. And I, I so I would say that like while it can be a form of escapism, I think King is talking about the idea that you know it's also necessary for us to not become monsters ourselves which again is a sort of sort of an affirmative way of, of approaching the genre yeah it's kind of like you can have you can have just a little bit of the bad as a treat as long as you promise you won't you won't do a lot of the bad right and as long as you promise to keep doing it just in really small doses right yeah it's just like how you like oh i've got a better metaphor now than a, excellent than escapism. i'm very excited it's kind of it's like how you could it's like uh you can have a little bit to drink, but if you have any more than that, then it's really bad. You don't want to indulge it. But a glass of wine here or there, that's fine. And not only fine, but actually potentially medicinally beneficial, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, Correct. yeah you, you can do that, but it's the point where it's, you 
have a dependency on it and you're always going back to it where it becomes a deep, dark problem. Yes. And I think, right, his argument about why we crave horror really aligns with what he feels is, is the sort of purpose of it. Um, and so this is also from Dance Macabre, um, but it's it's from his discussion of a, a text we've already looked at, which is The House Next Door by right. Anne Rivers Siddons. And he said, um, and this is again a quote, the purpose of horror fiction is not only to expo- explore taboo lands, but to confirm our own good feelings about the status quo by showing us extravagant visions of what the alternative might be. Like the scariest bad dreams, the good creep show often does its work by turning the status quo inside out. And then he says very specifically, uh, you know, that right now he says, um, quote, in an American society that has become more and more entranced by the cult of me-ism, it should not be surprising that the horror genre has turned more and more to trying to show us a reflection that we won't like our own. And so again, right, this this is a very, and I think this is really important because even though Darabont, um, you know, made some really significant changes to the potential affirmative, disaffirmative nature of, of the, the film through the ending, mm-hmm. um, so much of this film really does read as a, you know, um, but don't worry, there are some right. good people out there, um, some people who are able to reason and create rational and, uh, you know, relatable, you know, whatever it might be, whatever phrase you well, want to use. And uh, also frameworks. The, the problem in in the film is from a disregard for the status quo. There is no more status quo. And so the, that's, where, that's where the problems are stemming from. Yes. If everything had stayed as it was in this town, no problems. It would have been right. fine. But it's just because the status quo was upended and this is the this is like what he just said. It's the alternative to the status quo. Yes, exactly. And you know, one of the things that I think you know um, is really hard for a horror film to do effectively because it's asking a lot. But anytime a film can truly dismantle everything about the status quo, I think they have to go all the way to the foundation of of the like family unit, right? Um, and, you know, the idea that, like, we can't even trust the family unit. And again, that's not the case in this story, right? Uh, no. You know, um, Thomas Jane's character uh, is going Classic to be... Classic family man. Exactly. And he's going to be a good father figure. And, you know, one of the adaptive differences is that in The Mist, we see that he, you know, the character has had an affair with someone. And so he's right. a little less wholesome. In this version, right, patriarchy, um, the, the father figure is still the ultimate sort of godlike figure right like yeah he's... And Dar- darabont talked about that because he was like he cut that intentionally because he thought it was it would be too much uh to ask the audience to accept this flawed character he didn't want to he didn't want to have to muddy the waters he wanted right. to keep him as a, a very wholesome always right kind of every man and so i think and we can talk about this this more but i, I think one of one of the potential flaws of this film is that you can see sort of uh, two point of views at at odds and at tension with one another. And that is that this film, in many ways, seeks to still be the affirmative story of King, but it has these, or this major disaffirmative uh, ending. And it's kind of, it's, it's pulling at itself. And I don't think it always does so, I don't think it always resolves or maybe never resolves uh, that tension of, of those sort of two opposing forces. You know, I actually think I'm going to take a slightly different thing. I think that the ending, while being dark, is not disaffirmative. Because let's go ahead and discuss the change of the ending. In the novella that King wrote, uh, they escape and they're driving off. And after they find refuge for the night, uh, David is listening to the radio and he hears a single word broadcast, Hartford, and with that one shred of hope, he prepares to drive on into an uncertain future. And so it's very ambiguous as to what happens in the end. It's still kind of hopeful, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, maybe they, maybe they get out, maybe they don't. And it's, it's very familiar, right? Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that in this article... Uh, that why we crave horror that King references Dawn of the Dead because it's a very similar Indian, right? right? They're literally riding off into the sunrise um, and it, that could be really good or we could think about the fact that they don't have gas and there's a baby on the way, right? So again, I think that's that's a very effective way to to offer hope but to also 
fit within the reality of what's probably going to happen. Yeah, and so I think that in the in the film ending, they uh, it's obviously they lose that hope. They lose all hope, and so David then ultimately ends up killing uh, the four people who are in the car with him, including his son, and then gets out to go be killed by the creatures. And then it's revealed that the army is there, and they were just, if he had just waited, held out hope for just a little bit longer, then everything would have been okay. And so while I think that's, it's dark, obviously, because... If he had just waited just a little bit longer, everything would have been fine. He wouldn't have had to kill his son. I don't think that it is disaffirmative, necessarily, because it's still quite an affirmative ending in that if he had just held out hope and believed in the status quo and that things would work out, he w- it would have been rewarded. But it's because he turned his back on that and he lost hope, lost faith, whatever you want to say, We'll get back to the element of faith, obviously, later in the discussion. But it's because he lost that that the story had to end that way. And so that's active. That's not a disaffirmative ending. So I agree that that the arrival of of the military, right, and the sort of like proof that at the end of the day they've got us covered, right, um, or that the monsters are not going to win, um, and in theory with the arrival of the military, you know, we're going to lose some of our more extremist groups, right? They're going to sort of dissolve. I would say absolutely in that respect, you could read it. The conclusion as affirmative. I am going to disagree though, because for me, what I think is happening with the arrival of the military, um, is not evidence that the, the status quo, the way things are is, has, is a good way. And we can return to that. I, I read the ending a little bit more along the lines of, you know, we have spent this whole movie trusting um, David to to be the voice of reason because he's more educated, because he's a white middle class male, because he's, you know, this patriarchal father, almost savior figure. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think and I read the ending when he kills them. And then we have to see that he was wrong in his decision as a sort of like confirmation that um, maybe maybe we shouldn't have been trusting this voice all along. Well, so I, I can see that I can see that argument, but I just I don't know if it holds up because I think that the only the time that the film says he the film doesn't say that he was incorrect. In fact, he was correct. If they had they got out of the town, the military was right there, they would have been safe. It's the second that he turns his back on his belief system and this hope. I, I, I think that a big theme of the film is never giving up hope. Right. And the second that he gives up that hope and turns his back on his, the values that have been instilled to him as a, the patriarchal man, leader of family, and literally destroys his own family, kills that, is the second that it all turns bad for him specifically. So in that way, I think it, it, it's kind of a caution, maybe more of a cautionary tale, an affirmative cautionary tale um, Interesting. of what happens when you give up hope and you turn your back on the system. Because he was right. Yeah, I mean, he was right, except for the one time that he was really, really wrong. Um, in killing. Exactly. <laughs> right. right, right. So I don't know. I, I almost wonder if it can't be... A little bit of both um if it can't because I, you're making some really good claims i just there's something about how that scene ends and how the, and how the film ends kind of in light of everything else that makes me feel like like we have to wonder if we if we should have followed him all along because does it matter if he was right if we're dead um you know and and i, I mean obviously we're not really there but everyone in his party except for him died i think i think that's it if he had killed himself too and then the military had showed up i i think honestly for some reason i would have seen that as as more affirmative because it would have been exactly as you said he shouldn't have given up hope too bad he did etc but instead we kind of have to to see that you know he's the only one that's making it out he's the only one that's going to survive um and and to me that that makes me question whether or not I should go with 
with the status quo if it's going to ensure only the survival of those that are at the top. Um, and I, but I can see everything that you say. I, I simultaneously agree with. So I'm, I'm gonna have to say that I feel that again. I'm gonna go back to the tension. I think it creates tension because too much of what the rest of the film is doing doesn't quite match where the end of the film goes. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I, I, I'm not like, I thought that I liked the ending, but now I'm kind of thinking maybe I don't like the ending because you're, I think you're right. I think it does kind of offer a bit of a muddled message as to what you're supposed to take away, which is not a terrible thing. It's forcing us to have this conversation and really think about it. But ultimately, it doesn't really come down either way, which is interesting. And it's not it's not necessarily bad. I think, you know, it's not the ending that I have problems with. Um, I think what it is, is that, you know, we have a source material that Darabond was very attached to. And yeah. this was we... his passion project. He re this was the film he wanted to make. He wanted to start by making this film. But he also felt very strongly that the ending should be different. Right. And I'm going to go back to something we talked about uh, a long time ago with Hereditary. Um, and that is, is that I'm not sure the end showed its work, right? Like, I, I think that we needed the threads of the end to be tentacled and sort of woven into the film much, much more heavily for us to arrive at that conclusion and have it feel like it wasn't grafted on. I agree. Now, now I think I, I agree with you. I think it's one of those classic uh, twist ending just for the sake of doing a shock twist ending. It's... And so it leaves you feeling shocked. Sure, I was. It wasn't what I was expecting with the, my knowledge of Stephen King and that he usually writes such affirmative stories that have affirmative endings that are cultural resets and just puts everything right back to the status quo and everything's fine and dandy. It was that one isolated incident that was the problem? And so it was shocking in that regard because it was so dark, mm -hmm. and you could never, for this man in particular go back to status quo and things would never be quite be the same and good. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's a satisfying ending because I think what you're saying is right. It doesn't quite show its work enough to get you to that point. It just does that and it's like, isn't that pretty good? That's a pretty good ending, right? The weird thing is, is that I, I like the ending in that I think it's, it's a better for this type of story, for what I think the story wants to do or can do, um, I think it's better than the more ambiguous, you know, riding off into the mist. I think, um, yeah, I think that ending feel, would have felt trite. And yes. I think also that ending would have felt unsatisfying too. Yes, but I, I am going to make one more argument for being disaffirmative um, based on something you just said. I think oh, the I'm other ready. thing we have to remember is that um, David is, is also as a character now going to have to question the status quo that has said as a white educated male, um, he has the answers, right? And his solutions, mm -hmm. his methods um, are, are going to be the right ones. And he has to spend the rest of his, you know, fictitious life realizing that everything he's ever been taught about the sort of like natural rightness that is him um, is not the case. And, and certainly, you know, I don't think he's gonna, um, you know, like become a religious fanatic or anything like that. But, but I think the fact that our figure is gonna have to question whether or not his entire life based on, on who he thought he was and his like integral role, I just, it feels very placeless, right? I think he loses his sense of place at the end. And, and I, I can definitely see that argument, but I can also see just a doubling down of it in him because it's like if i had only just stuck to my guns just a little bit longer if i had only held out hope and believed in what i knew was right because i can definitely see that argument playing out in his head it's like i was correct if i had just kept to this and not given up then it would have been okay it's true and so i i think and I, that's why i think that because i think david as a character is not quite as complicated as that ending warrants. I think you would have had to do some more muddying of the character. Like, I don't know, perhaps 
making him not so perfect. Yes. In order to be like, oh yeah, maybe maybe he would realize now that everything he's been taught is a bit of a lie, but he has no reason to. He's a perfect, I, you said this earlier, Christ-like figure. Yes. Who is leading the non-believers and was right the whole time. And yeah, they died, but it's just because he gave up on the cause. Yes. What would have been interesting... Well, lots of things could have been interesting, but I think you're very right. Is there a term... What is the term that I can never remember? Um, Susie... Wait. What's the... A Mary Sue. Mary Sue, thank you. There is... It's a Gary Stew. There we go. Okay. Gary Stew is the male equivalent of that? I I believe so. Let me double... Okay. Let me... me They both sound silly, so I'm okay. It doesn't matter to me either way. Mary Sue, Gary... Gary Stew? I think so. Okay. A Gary Stew, also called a Marty Stew. I like Gary Stew better. Um, is the we'll stick male with Gary Stew? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I think I think you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head in, in that his character, he really is. You know, we often talk about female characters that are underdeveloped as being Mary Sues. Well, uh, you know, he's the Gary well, Stew. Underdeveloped and yet shown to still be like perfect in everything they try to do exactly um, and and he's the gary stew right he's the, he's the male version and and i think that like th- that we have a perfect example here right in in a film that he is by far the least interesting character for sure um and you know when i think about why this film terrifies me it has very little to do with him um or his plot line right it really has to do with the religious mania um and the like just mob mentality stuff um, and, and you're going to get some of that when you have Thomas Jane as your actor, right? He's, yeah. he's a very stoic actor. He's, he's not known for emoting or, or micro acting, micro movements, right? He's, he's very sort of. Yeah. It's a one dimensional stock character. He's yes. the lead. He's the male lead. And I think what would be interesting, um, you know, would be to kind of take that idea of, you know, that, like you said, we have to see him wrestling with things earlier on, you know, and, and I think if we played more with this idea of PTSD or um, postpartum depression, right, which wouldn't obviously mean we could have a male character, but, but something where we're trying, where we're wrestling with, like, where is that line between what we know is cognitively correct versus Mm -hmm. emotionally right? Um, And I, I think that if we had had that, kind of built into this right maybe he was an abusive father who realized who was abusive only because he was super stressed at work but now that he's not stressed by that right like i don't know but if we if we'd somehow or if he had maybe cheated on his wife like was in the original novella and wasn't just literally anything where he isn't just so perfect yes and so that makes it hard to see the ending i think as just disaffirmative because we mm-hmm. have to assume that despite his quote one mistake, which admittedly is a big one, right? It's like, a huge mistake, obviously. Yes. But but it's like despite this one thing, he's perfect otherwise, so we'll be okay, right? That's why um, I think that's why I think it's a cautionary tale then. It's like just trust in the system. Trust in these values. And if you had if this character had, everything would have been hunky dory. And I think for me, because I am a little bit um I can be a little bit of a sheep, right? Like, not so much like, yeah, I can be a little sheepy, right? Like, where I'm like, okay, well, this is the way it's always been. Um, I think that's, for me, why I, I have to read this film as disaffirmative, because my natural instinct would be to to go to him, right? Because he is educated, and he does he is rational, and he is a good father. Um, and so, for me, it has to be disaffirmative, because I if I had gone with him, I would have for sure died, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Which is, is a really kind of interesting, but like we've said, very muddled uh, way to, to end this film. And, and I think in part, you know, we're going to talk about how we haven't even talked about the monsters, right? Um, yeah, well, which... I, I also think are the super uninteresting. They're the second least interesting characters in this oh, movie. That's so but sad. It's David and then the monsters from the mist for yes. me are the two. The, most uninteresting characters and parts of this movie 
I, I think so. And I think that, that it's because really what's more interesting and, and lots of, you know, monster theorists talk about this, like Stephen Asma, right? It's, it's that monsters are really a symbol for human vulnerability and crisis. And they right. play roles in our thinking about our responses to menace. And the truth is, is that what, what is then more interesting than the monsters is, is how they are the, allowing the human, us. The human's response to the monster. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And I think that is the most interesting part. You see, uh, there are two movements, excuse me, there are three movements that rise up in reaction to this, to the monster. It's the, the one led by the lawyer, which is kind of this common sense prevails that monsters don't exist. Denial, just flat out denial. And you see what happens to them. There's the camp led by David, who is more of the, this is real, but there's a way we can get out of this. Mm -hmm. If we just keep our faith and we know what is right and good and just on how we treat other people, we can get out of this. And then there's the third camp that rises up uh, that is led by Miss Carmody, which is the more religious, Bible-beating, fanatic response yes. to it. Yes. And uh, the one that I think is the most interesting part. That's it is. My, she is my most interesting character for this movie. And I'm not alone. I know... That that's kind of the what everybody thinks. Yeah. Every review I've read has been like, she's excellent. That's the best part of the movie. Every, everything I've looked at. So yes. I know I'm not alone. That's not unique. I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah. So, you know, um, Anthony knows more, but podcasters, you've probably picked up on the fact that uh, I was raised pretty conservatively. Um, and one of the like sort of big discussions was you know like end of times and so I'm going to be scared of any end of times thing just kind of like because of my childhood um but when you couple that with this this lack of, of of rationality and a mob mentality you know you're you're pretty much if you had thrown in being an accused of a crime that you hadn't actually committed you would have hit like every of all of my buttons right like all the things that you fear most exactly and i and i think that for me what what this film does so effectively is that it it forces us to to experience this sort of like exponential crisis right Mm -hmm. um and we start with one thing that i think is going to be very frightening to to many people and that is the sense of isolation um i can't remember her name um or the character now that she plays on Walking Dead, Carol. Um, I can't remember the actress's name, but the um, woman who plays Carol on The Walking Dead has a small little part in this film, which makes sense because uh, then she goes in to be Walking Dead, which is also Darabont. Yeah, he's um, one of his other babies. Exactly. But there's that scene, right, where she, she decides that she would rather rush out into the mist to get home to her children than, than stay in the store and, and risk you know being safe, but her children aren't. And so from the beginning, we, we have this, like, re- something that I think is very disturbing. And that is, you know, what do you do if the people that you rely on to help you make decisions or the people that are in your trust are, are away from you? And, and this is, and we start there, right? And then if you, if you don't have your support system, your network of, of sounding boards, how easy would it be to be persuaded um, by yeah. religious mania um, or by someone that is is the opposite of that, right? But regardless, the moment that you start giving into those things is the moment a mob forms. Um, and mob mentality, I think, is is one of the most terrifying things. Mm-hmm. Period, because it's also one of the re- most real things. It's all consuming. Yes. It's, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you can definitely see like the influences from like Lord of the Flies on this work. Yes, and that sense of just cult-like, unquestioning devotion to a cause, like a central, be- a core belief system, and anything where you don't question any part of it and you just wholeheartedly go full into it is scary. And you don't even have to go fictitious, right? Salem right. witch trials, um, any For lynching sure. or mobbing that we have done repeatedly throughout history, the Holocaust, right? Like mm-hmm. it is, it is. There are too many real examples of situations where we have created this monster that is us and it has no brain because it's too many brain. Like it's just, it's very disturbing. 
And I, I've read, I was reading some things about this film and people's reactions to it. And a lot of people pointed out that it's like, this is what happens when humans are in groups together. And that's it. It's like the, the message of the film is that humans in groups are always bad. And I actually don't know if I necessarily agree with that analysis. I think uh, I agree to it with, to an extent. I think that what this film is, and the novella obviously are, are really more talking about is like groups not, are not necessarily a bad thing. We need groups to survive. You need, everyone has groups that they rely on. Like you were talking about, like whether that be their friends, their families, uh, religion is not necessarily a terrible thing. No. Uh, but it's groups in response to crises yes. that can be the problem, particularly when the crises uh, forces you to be like, you have to make a decision now because the world is at stake here. Yes. And so it's, yeah, it's, I think it is less of groups bad and more of when groups are put into really hard crises like this, it's a lot harder. I mean, essentially this film is like proof for why group projects should not exist in schools, right? Um, <laughs> because like everything you described, uh, groups under stress, not with their natural support system, um, you know, like that's that's group work um, at its worst. But I think you're right. I think what this film shows is perhaps we can differentiate between a group versus a collective, right? Or, or mm -hmm. find some sort of, of term to, to differentiate between when you have something that is controlled by a charismatic power or when everyone just sort of gives up control um, or fights and, and things like that versus a collective where if they had said, hey, good news, we have someone who can offer religious support. We have someone who can offer rationale. This person is going to bring in uh, one of my favorite characters is the uh, grocery store manager. I just thought he was kind of a nicely developed um, smaller character played by a good character actor. I love Toby Jones. He's, yeah. He's a great little character actor. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, and, and I think so, like, again, um, I think you're absolutely correct that, that it's not so much about humans or even a human group. It, it really is almost more, um, again, about this idea that perhaps we, the fault lies with a system uh, that does not train us to to know how to properly work in groups or mm -hmm. to know how to properly deal with crises and and i think crises often provoke extreme behavior yeah and falling into extremist camps on where it's like it's either all or nothing i think you can see that even right now in terms of uh the covid response it's like we either need to be completely back open or completely shut down. Yes. Those are kind of like, if you dumb it down, those are the two positions. Yes. And if you're on the left and you see anybody who is going, who is going out into a park, even if they're social distancing or stuff like, it's like, wow, look at these people. They don't care about anybody else. And if you're on the right, it's like all of these restrictions are just government, total government control. You're being manipulated and you're a sheep and you're just a dumb follower. Yes. And there's no room for nuances in these situations. And I and that's what makes it a perfect film uh, to talk about now, right? Like, I'm so glad that you brought in that that connection because you're absolutely correct that, and we're seeing this, right? Uh, independent of COVID, but COVID has, again, much, I'm going to make a, a terribly extended metaphor here, much like the, the monsters in the mist, right? COVID-19 has essentially acted as an incubator, right? It's not that mm -hmm. we haven't had these issues, um, no. It's that it's that they are being incubated into this like yeast monster, right? That is growing like super large. This was a weird extended metaphor. I realize. No, um, go for it. I love you. it. I love Thank where you. it's going. <laughs> but but you're right. Um, that that we are realizing that it doesn't make sense to have one side or the other. You can't have the no. rational and the emotional separate. You can't have, you know, someone taking care of of our practical needs and someone taking care of our spiritual needs right and, and keep them separate that doesn't that doesn't work and that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. um and so you know we see that right we see that at the, throughout the entire film um yeah and it's not just a, a uniquely american problem either no. you see this around the world though around the world it is a little less the left has a particular side and the right has a particular side sometimes they swap it's just that it's more about the 
crisis promotes extreme reactions. And it, and it promotes seeing those extreme reactions as a fundamental part of your identity. Yeah, right? and is totally justifiable. Yes. Because we have people, you know, equating their decisions in the in the the real world with, you know, whatever their thoughts are about COVID-19 reflects their like thoughts about patriotism, right? Which mm-hmm. and like it goes so deep and again we see that in the mist where, you know, it's not just that Mrs. Carmody is a is religious, right? Um, or that she believes that this is a sign. Um, it's that that is who she is at her core, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and and to think anything else, to have any other thought, would mean to have to be a different person, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and that is, to me, that that is one of the most terrifying yes. premises. You tie um, your sense of identity and being into this extreme belief. And I, I think this movie... Uh, came out in 2007 so it's really interesting to see it cap it's very successfully predicted and captured this trend of the rise of partisanship and growing extremism that was around obviously in 2007 but it's really rearing its head after from 2016 onward and particularly now uh what is interesting though about reading this film as a metaphor for partisanship and and again i think like you said it's really effective to do so again though it becomes really i don't know squishy when we Mm -hmm. think about who the role that david is supposed to play in this right if he's supposed to be the and i don't think he is right i think the problem is is that it's easy to read him as the the middle right as as someone who has managed to to incorporate both the emotional or, or not spiritual so much but emotional and the like practical right mm-hmm. um he dies or he, his his method leads to death right so there right. there's this weird way in which um this film does not tell us or let us see an option that is going to work and um, so in that way i would argue, i would actually say that this film might actually be more disaffirmative if your yes. primary reading of it is through this partisan lens and you're like that's really what the film is about it's about how uh, partisan behavior promotes a particularly intense crisis, leads to extreme partisanship, and even when you go in the middle, it doesn't work because the system as a whole is flawed. There's no right way to work within the system, whether you're extreme or in between these two extremes. I could see that if that's your primary lens of of what you're in, uh, if that is your primary lens of analysis for the film, then perhaps I could actually see it reading as disaffirmative. Yes, I will take that as a win. Yeah, I, I hadn't I, I hadn't thought about it like that. Excellent. But that I think that I think it could work. I, I don't see any reason why you can't do that can't be the primary lens of analysis that you do from this film because it's it's so substantiated by the film itself. One of the things we haven't talked about is the how the critical reception of this film, right? I assume it's mm-hmm. probably not very high. So uh, that's actually it's mixed. Okay. It's not terrible. Uh, critics actually uh, some say that this is what horror is supposed to be and it's been put on lists of some of the best horror from the 21st century some people say uh, that it is just a competently made uh, this is from Roger Ebert's review it's a competently made horrible things pouncing on people movie Uh, it's just a they didn't it's more of just a typical genre fair that doesn't rise above it Rotten Tomatoes score, Critic 72, Metacritic, Critic 58, mm. Letterbox score is a 3.5. So it's not terrible. Uh, it's just more of mixed. As time has gone on, however, the reaction to the film has been gotten quite a bit more favorable with people being like, it deserves a, to be revisited. It's actually quite good. It has some good stuff in it. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that's quite the answer that you were hoping for. Yeah, but... actually it is because I what I... What I was thinking about was that before we started recording, you know, you said that, that this wasn't and that this film didn't do anything one way or the other for you. That it wasn't like, you know, wasn't the best thing you'd seen. It's certainly not the worst. But no. but I I and then you said that your big complaints are that the monsters are this and the scenes with the monsters first don't don't really hold up. Right. The special effects no. certainly don't. But also just the like 
the monsters are used for your absolute least favorite thing about horror, and that is the jump scares, right? Cheap um, jump scares. Cheap. Cheap and... jump scares. They're not even good. They're not even good jump scares. That's so funny. Um, and and you said um, that you also have some problems that you think that, you know, the, the film might be not crafting the, the complex enough characters that we have come to expect now in terms of, you know, um, you're not going to be completely defined by, in large part, your socioeconomic status, um, as this film kind of tends to do. Well, unless, and, and I, I said that, but that was when I was not using my primary lens of analysis of yeah. partisanship. So I might, that problem I don't think holds up as much for me, but now it's just, the main, my main problem is that is more of just what we're talking about, about the film. That is one thing that the film is doing, but a large majority of the film is dedicated to those cheap, monstery tentacle things. It's, it's this weird, disgusting looking CGI. It was clearly before they had, they were trying to do something more ambitious than what they actually could. Um, and so much of the film is just that. And, and I think that this, and I was hoping that you would kind of say that because I think that one of the reasons that I like this film is that it allows for some of those deeper conversations, you know, even as it, it may fail because as a, as a monster film or as a creature feature, um, mm -hmm. you know, that it, it offers enough other things um, to really redeem itself. And I think this is just a good example of, you know, a film being capable of more than perhaps it, it originally meant to be right. Like I know Darabont has said that, you know, this isn't really about the monsters outside is really about the monsters inside the people you're stuck with, things like that. But I, I think that this film is a perfect example of the ways that you can offer this critical framework that I'm sure Darabont probably didn't have partisanship in mind, but this film becomes such a perfect framework for understanding these really complex things in a way that just makes perfect sense because it's been stripped down to its most basic horrible level right and and that's and i think that's the best part of the film and when it really is a, when it's having those those converse it's more of the conversations in this situation that i found worked really well and what i enjoyed about the film it's just that there's only like three or four of those conversations where you can really kind of see that and it's what we're we've based our our analysis of the film on but it's those moments are fleeting in the two hour and five minute runtime that is this film so they for me i think what's interesting is is that they may be fleeting in terms of the screen time um but oh, excuse when i me two hours and six minutes oh that, that's an important distinction i want to i don't want to get fact checked i don't want yeah. anybody to be like no. it's actually hours and six minutes and so everything else that you've said just can't be right invalidated yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. but but i think you know for me when i think about this film that's that's what i think about right it perhaps it's not occupying the primary screen time but it is occupying my primary mental time and based on what you said about other people you know finding uh marcia gay harden as you know one of the better performances and things like that it's mm -hmm. what's sticking out in other people's minds too yeah. Um, and true. so I think I think what's interesting is as this idea that we can have a film that perhaps meant to be something else um, or is almost by effect something else based on screen time. But that's not what resonates. Um, right. It's a film that doesn't know what it's about. Yes. It doesn't or rather, excuse me, that's too condescending. It doesn't know what the most interesting part about the film is. And what's interesting, again, is is we do have, you know, Darabont saying, and this is a quote that he says, the story is less about the monsters outside than about the monsters inside, the people you're mm -hmm. stuck with, your friends and neighbors breaking under the strain. I, I would say that it's, it's not even that the film doesn't know what's the most interesting parts. I would say that it's a film that didn't have the luxury of being a horror film today because it had yeah. to be a horror film in 2007 where we had to have the primary things and then we could sneak in our vegetables, right? Yeah. Um, and okay, that... that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's probably more accurate. I think today, I think you're probably right. If this film had been made today, it may have been able to have been done on like for a real small budget and you that stuff outside in the mist would have probably only been alluded to. Yes. And really we would have seen a deep dive 
into the relationships. And, and I think if Darabont had, because you said that it took him a long time to get this film approved. Oh yeah, it took him 20 years. That's insane. And he first had to do, like, win a whole bunch of... Yeah, so he, he worked on two other Stephen King adaptations that were really successful. The Shawshank Redemption in 1994, and then The Green Mile in 1999. Just little Before. films, you may have heard of them. Yeah, just a couple of Oscar-nominated films. And and then he, it was only after winning those awards that he was able to to get this film greenlighted, right? Uh, with the ending that he wanted. Because... He really wanted, he wanted this changed ending and this, and everyone was kind of like, uh, not really sure. You're going to have to change your ending that you have in the script right now. And he was like, nope, not going to do that. Not going to do it. Whereas I think if he had presented that film today, um, or, you know, in the last couple of years, um, they would have said only if you keep the ending that you've proposed, right. Mm -hmm. And like make it an even bigger deal. So I just, I think that it's a, it's a product of its, generic times we weren't yeah. ready um to go there yet and now we are um and so that's what we focus on right to to the film's credit so up next uh is going to be a film that neither anthony nor i are very big fans of and it is the film we were originally planning to release as our next episode back before covid and that Indeed. is uh, 1973's The Exorcist. So we look forward to you joining us for that episode. And in the meantime, yeah, be sure to uh, rate and review this podcast. It really helps us if you do both of those things. Share us with your friends and all of our social media is linked down in the description below. Thank you for listening. Thank you.